This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 18, A New Empire. A new British Empire embodies a swing to the east following the 18th century taking of India, judged the most important event in British history from the Reformation to the Industrial Revolution. After 1815, Britain had no clearly defined policy of imperial expansion, but it would gradually build a new empire to replace the one lost in North America. With the Caribbean relics of sharply diminished interest, no slaves anymore to work the fields, and the colonies of settlement, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, manifesting an increasing sense of independence, Britain's geostrategic center shifted from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean, stimulating the desire to keep India free of the French. This meant not only India, but that entire oceanic world embracing the Arabian Sea, Persian Gulf, Bay of Bengal, and the saltwater shores of East Africa from the mouth of the Red Sea, the Bab el Mandeb, to the Cape of Good Hope, with Southeast Asia and the China Seas as one salient of that world, and Australia, New Zealand, and Oceania as another salient. Australia, later attractive for its resources, initially interested Britain as a place to send convicts, since the American Georgia was no longer available for that purpose. Thus, two major military cores of British power developed, the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic, separated by 12,000 miles, home and India. This generated a perceived need to protect the northern land frontier of the subcontinent as well as its oceanic approaches. The British sustained their Indian presence with a lifeline, so-called, a string of outposts and coaling stations, pinpoints en route, Gibraltar, Malta, Suez, Aden, as well as larger territorial commitments, South Africa, Ceylon. This was supplemented by what we could call the informal empire. Eighty percent of British capital invested overseas goes into the old empire, the USA and the Dominions, Canada or Australia, or to Argentina and other temperate lands, typically railways, gold mines, and utilities, gasworks, electric power plants. Thus, trade and investment do not necessarily follow the flag into newly acquired territories. But the spirit of empire suffused that enterprise. The British elite steeped in the traditions of the classics of the ancient Mediterranean world, so important a part of the education of the elite, 
like to think of themselves as modern-day Romans. Like the Romans, they thought of themselves as a world empire, but they lay beyond the Mediterranean, without limits. Like the Romans, the British, especially the Scots, were engineers building harbors and highways, ultimately railroads. And as officials, they perceived themselves as bringing law and order to the benighted. Thus, their presence was both concrete and abstract. But the analogy with Rome was not very good, more romantic than real, stemming perhaps from the British classical education. Rome was a regional land power stretched around a large inland sea. Long-distance trade was not its specialty and did not prod the building of its empire. The Romans were not ocean-minded. Rome was never an oceanic city. I think you'll agree that the British probably owed more to the Dutch example than to the Romans. The British built their empire primarily, but not exclusively, to defend their trade. In a broader sense, one can think of the British imperial experience in terms of a continuing moral struggle between greed and violence rooted in the search for wealth and power versus a benevolent imperative felt by those wanting to educate and improve alien societies seen as backward, even degenerate. The British had to construct negative paradigms for those they colonized based on theories of racial eugenics and social Darwinism, convincing to themselves, but not to others, and now thoroughly discredited except by bigots. The power of self-confidence suffuses. A spirit of triumphalism reigns among these self-appointed champions of the civilized world. Colonial rule, like all authoritarian rule, must be based on bluff. It has to seem natural. As soon as colonizers begin to lose faith in their natural right to rule, the structure collapses. Hence, the importance of nerve. As Colin Powell once observed, optimism is a force multiplier. The mood of the era was expressed in morale, vigor, an almost religious sense of duty inculcated in the great public schools, Eton, Harrow, Winchester, Rugby, with competitive sports as a laboratory. Wellington supposedly said the battlefield of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton. Britons took great pride in Stoicism. One apocryphal incident was at Waterloo. General Wellington, standing next to Lord Uxbridge, saw a bouncing cannonball knocking off his lordship's leg. Wellington says, 
By God, Uxbridge, you've lost your leg. Uxbridge, looking down, replied, By God, sir, you're right. Uxbridge later had his leg buried with full military honors. Americans spoke of their manifest destiny. This seemed unnecessary to Britons because it was all self-evident. God is an Englishman. Britannia ruled the waves, and the pound was indeed a sterling currency. The attitude shines with particular splendor in the words of Cecil Rhodes, the South African business mogul and empire builder. We happen to be the best people in the world with the highest ideals of decency and justice and liberty and peace, and the more of the world we inhabit, the better it is for humanity. The audacity is awesome and breathtaking. Rhodes, like the social Darwinists, was convinced that white people were genetically superior and thus superior empire builders. Rhodes believed that empire was for the good of humankind, creating a benign environment. Rhodes was not unique. Somewhat later, Lord Curzon, a high Mandarin in the British establishment and sometime Viceroy of India, 1899-1905, referring to the British in Southwest Asia, said, We found strife and we have created order. A century of costly and triumphant enterprise represents the most unselfish pages in history. Africans and Asians might have expressed it differently. The spirit is not entirely dead. Margaret Thatcher, on October 6, 1999, at a Conservative Party conference in Blackpool, said, We are quite the best country in Europe. In my lifetime, all the problems have come from mainland Europe, and all the solutions have come from the English-speaking nations across the world. Some scholars, too, offer immense rationalizations for the injustices committed by the empire builders. Edward Said takes a different tack. His influential book, Orientalism, argues for a linkage between cultural power and political power, cultural power being part of imperialism. He suggests a Euro-American view of the East as sensual, corrupt, vicious, lazy, tyrannical, and backward. To his mind, an invented East, a series of demeaning stereotypes arose intended to justify European hegemony, with writers like Kipling, E.M. Forster, Joseph Conrad providing cultural legitimacy for that point of view. The power of steam made Britain a multiracial commonwealth. Empire not only shaped Britain and stimulated its sense of superiority and racial arrogance, but also nourished a liberal and humanitarian sense of responsibility 
and mission. 1851 marks a climax in the expression of British success. In London, the first World's Fair, held in Joseph Paxton's Crystal Palace, a blazing arch of lucid glass, more than half of the objects were British-made, the hydraulic press, steam locomotives, and machine tools, textiles, pottery, and that wonder of wonders, a flush toilet. Yet, some were apprehensive, uneasy over American achievements, notably the McCormick Reaper and the Colt Revolver. But generally, the London press preened over the apparent success of British science, British technology, British political acumen, British civilization. Queen Victoria confided to her diary, we are capable of doing anything. The British Empire, as a creature of pelagic power, transformed the international world by setting the standard for world business with British common law and British standards of accounting, by shaping present-day democracy or the democratic ideal, by provoking the free market economy of North America, much of Asia, and elsewhere, and by making the English language the dominant global tongue and the vehicle for the spread of these ideas and institutions. One other 19th century phenomenon relevant to our concerns originating in Britain is the discovery of the shore. Hitherto, for most Europeans, ocean was the great unknown. In the Bible, Noah and Jonah set the tone of mystery and terror. The ocean came to be identified with toil and misery, the ardors and dangers of life on the sea. To be at sea meant confusion. The 19th century brings a dramatic change of attitudes. Discovery of the shore is part of the Romantic movement. Writers like Byron or Coleridge and painters like Turner or Constable along with the French Impressionists, saw fascination and beauty in the seascape, the terrifying sublime. A new and fresh, unspoiled environment along shore attracted the public. Mountain climbing also becomes popular. The seaside was touted as a place to purify the depravities of urban life, to escape the squalor of the industrial environment portrayed so vividly in Coketown, as Charles Dickens termed it in his novel Hard Times. Dr. Richard Russell preached the therapeutic values of the sea. His prescription was total immersion of the body plus drinking one gallon of seawater daily. The rediscovery of swimming was perhaps inspired by 
classical antiquity. In 1810, Byron famously swims the Hellespont from Europe to Asia. For him, this annulled his club foot, which made him a cripple on dry land. Shelley, intoxicated by the sea, drowns in the Mediterranean, perhaps purposefully, clutching, it was said, a copy of Sophocles in one hand. Swimming becomes part of a cult of athleticism and a stoic passion for the early morning cold plunge. Eaton takes the lead and swimming strokes begin to be standardized. The breaststroke was the most popular in the 19th century, having the advantage of long, sweeping motion of the hands, which can keep noxious objects out of the mouth. Close students of the art kept tubs of frogs to study their kick and how they pressed their chests into the water. Captain Matthew Webb, on August 28, 1875, was the first person to swim across the channel, clad in a red bathing costume, as the press reported, slathered in porpoise oil for warmth, as the press also reported, stung by jellyfish, battered by strong currents. Nonetheless, in 21 hours, 45 minutes, Webb swam from Dover to Calais, his feet was a source of great national pride. A Victorian treatise on swimming begins, There is no instance of any foreigner, civilized or uncivilized, whose achievements in the water surpass those of the British. Not until the 20th century does the so-called Australian crawl predominate. The up-and-down kick with alternately up-and-down stroke. As we know, this was of Polynesian origin, as was surfing. Gradually, interest in the beach shifts from the therapeutic to the hedonistic. Sun worship and vacations become the norm, even for the working class. Yachting is popular for the rich, and resorts like Blackpool thrive for the less privileged. Join us next time for episode 19 as we look at Britain's continuing rivalry with France's oceanic career as Britain builds this new empire. Why did Britain prevail? Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg, recording by 1623 Studios in Gloucester, Massachusetts, production and distribution by Albert Buichadé-Ferré. Goodbye until next time.